Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Cure, cannabis used for research and education. The medical industry is steadfastly looking to help millions of patients that suffer from injuries related to repetitive motion, sports, trauma, and many other orthopedic injuries, as well as skin disorders, mental disorders, cancer, and osteoporosis, to name only a few of the other underlying conditions that billions suffer from each day. On average in this country, we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day. With the cost of pharmaceutical medicines increasing, patients deserve natural alternatives that are not only more cost-effective, but also safer for them and society. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing a therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website at www.curemich.com. Cure, cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is also brought to you by Green Scene. Green Scene is a family-owned company recognized as the Sizzle Award winner for outdoor living in Williamson County. We design and construct areas to blend with the natural landscape of your yard. That can include outdoor spaces, gazebos, fire pits, outdoor kitchens, and yes, putting greens. We understand the importance of your home. That's why we never settle for anything but the best. Green Scene also provides multiple teams with professional landscape maintenance, irrigation, and outdoor lighting. Welcome to On The Verge. Today's special guest is an entrepreneur and really this is the kind of information that i love to get out he has a similar passion in education and the things that we should be educated on that we are not he is the he's a partner in modern lending and he has a podcast called housing i mean beyond the loan for it's housing plus financing podcast joining me today Chad Anderson. Chad, how are you today buddy? I'm doing great man. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I'm uh, I'm fascinated with uh, the courage slash entrepreneurship <laughs> that it took for you to leave one of the big box mortgage lending uh, uh, businesses to start your own. What kind of courage did it take and how hard was it to trust the parachute to jump? Yeah, I mean, it, it took a lot of thinking. Um, I've always been one. I mean, I go back to like elementary school. You remember in school where they would basically bribe kids with a catalog of prizes if you go sold a certain number of like cheesecakes or magazines or something <laughs> yes, like that the like, magazine trail. yeah right that was what they did and so i uh even from that day i was always wanting to be entrepreneur sales etc and i remember going door to door in my neighborhood just begging people to buy magazines I'm like seven years old and so i think doing those kinds of things and being in sales in high school and in college and, and so forth up until post-college with real estate and mortgages. I think that kind of bred me for 
you know, kind of going out on your own and taking that leap. Mm-hmm. The biggest thing about the mortgage side, though, is you always heard these horror stories because of 07, 08, 09. Mm-hmm. Be careful. You want a safe place to land. You want a safe place to be, one that's not going to go under. You don't want to be out there on your own if the market crashes, economy crashes, things like that. Mm-hmm. And and the more and more just kind of looked at it, it's like, you know, I, I just still feel like I can mitigate my risk. I can handle this. I can handle the pressure. I love the grind. It excites me. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that was that was really it. It was just a time where I was like, I want to do this at some point in my life. You know, my dad always makes the the joke with life. He's like, it's not a dress rehearsal. You, know, you, you got one shot here. So, you know, I, I don't want to be 70 mm-hmm. and regretting never taking the shot and the leap. So, on one hand... It was very nerve-wracking because mm-hmm. you think, I got a family, got three kids, three dogs, got a mortgage, I got my own bills. Yep. But then on the flip side, it's you're you're never going to get to that next level without some sort of risk. And so I just thought this was really the best time to do it. I love it. Well, you've been doing it for just short of 12 years, is that correct? Mortgages. Or just a little bit more than 12? Yeah, mortgages, uh, barely over 12 years in general. And then we just started this uh, this company seven weeks ago wow yeah i love the courage i'm fascinated you know you you mentioned 2008 and there's a lot of people that are starting to sweat bullets like 2023 (laughs) might be similar to 2008 and you talked about the being able to mitigate your risk in that situation how do you feel with the impending recession that we seem to be staring at going forward is mirroring not mirroring and how what did you learn in 08 that's going to help you prepare yourself for what we're staring at here in the future yeah, I mean, really, if you are in a spot, uh, and if you look at history, this is the best time to invest because everybody from stocks to real estate to whatever, people are going to be selling mm-hmm. because they have this fear of I missed the peak or it's going to get worse. I'm, I want out now. Give me my money. Give me yeah. my cash. So a lot of times, if you have the money and the capability, this is the best time to go spend it. Yeah. and invest when things are a little bit lower. Um, I don't think we're going to see anything like 08. I'm not worried about that at all, personally. Yeah. Uh, I, If you went back and looked, I mean, COVID and the pandemic, and that was obviously a once-in-a-lifetime, beyond-a-lifetime situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you go back and look, housing demand. So from the last recession, 08, 09, Everybody was crashing, going under bankruptcies, foreclosures, etc. And then people got out on the other side of it, and they were afraid to build houses because they were afraid of that same risk. They're like, I just got out of this. I don't want to go through it again. Yeah. When the United States didn't build houses for a certain period of time, that's what has caused the shortage and the demand for everybody today. Wow. Because you got all these people who want to buy houses, people, first-time home buyers out of college, et cetera. I mean, we missed, if you think about it, a window. There's five, six straight years where houses weren't being built. Yep. And if you go back and look, this was from the summer, though, so this stat has changed. But uh, if you go back to 2008, there were about 116 million households. There were over three and a half million homes for sale in 08. You look at today, there's 130 million households. And in July, there was still less than a million homes for sale. So it's a huge gap. There's still a huge demand. So I just don't think you're going to see anything like 
what we had before, and that's why I'm not nervous about it. Mm-hmm. It may get bumpy. You know, it may give you some PTSD yeah. from 15 years ago, yeah. 12 years ago, whatever. Uh, but I think when you look at it, really the problem right now is inflation. And once inflation, mortgage rates follow inflation. So when inflation comes back down, mortgage rates will come back down. And the federal government, that's why they keep raising the Fed rate, is to fight inflation. Mm-hmm. So when inflation comes back down, mortgage rates will go back down. And then you'll see more people want to buy again. Yeah. People still want to buy. They just don't want to buy at 7% you know, or have a payment that's $400 more than they thought. Or what they can afford is now a completely different house than what they could afford when rates were lower. Yeah. So I think when you see that, the demand is still there. There was actually a stat um, also, this was from 2021, that said the United States could build new homes at a record pace for five straight years, and we would still be short on national housing. Wow. So demand's there. We're just in a spot where too much money was injected into the economy during COVID, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe at the time it was necessary. You know, you, there's multiple opinions on that. Yeah. But that's why we're in this spot. But when inflation comes back down, rates will go back down, and you'll see demand come back. Yeah, and it's also interesting. Is like, really, we just had a, an unprecedented probably 12-year run of close to zero mm-hmm. interest rates. Yeah. And for a lot of people, they've never experienced the con- the concern of the power of interest. Right. And therein lies one of your hot buttons, which is education. And what people have no idea what they're doing, talking about, etc. And one of my passions for this podcast is to take the opportunity to inform people about things that we should be being taught in school, in college, that literally doesn't even cross the, doesn't even blip across the radar screen of education. But yet our whole world is, this is a foundational piece of our life, a mortgage, and, and or how it works. And yet so few people have a damn clue about how it works. What is it that you feel compelled to share with people about the importance of understanding it so that they become better educated and make better decisions on where they buy, what they buy, and how they choose to go about it? So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not one of those conspiracy theorists. I mean... I think there are things that are, you know, maybe taught on purpose or, you know, not shared or you're kind of steered into a certain direction. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, just think about it. If you go to high school and you learn the quadratic formula, when have you ever used that? 10, 20 years later. Mm, Somewhere on none. Yeah, none. Exactly. Uh, Logarithms. Have you ever used logarithms? The... You know, uh, nuclear biology of some organism in biology class. When have you ever done that? You know, when have you ever dissected a frog when you're an adult? Like, we do those things literally in school. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that there's not some sort of maybe just foundational, it works your brain muscles, it just helps you learn and be well rounded. I get all that. Mm -hmm. But you can't sit over here and have the well rounded theory and then not teach common sense for sure it, it makes that that's not common sense like how do you how do you argue well-roundedness but then you don't teach people basic life fundamentals yeah and my whole point going back was i want people to have the opportunity to build wealth and create a life that they want i mean that's the whole point of america right like that's why every 
person outside of America just about wants to come into America. If you know you're in one of those situations, like people want to get here because of the freedom and the capitalism and just everything that's available. Yeah, and we don't teach that stuff. We don't teach how to open a business. We don't teach kids what an LLC is, what an S corporation is, which one you should do, why you should do it, tax benefits, tax write-offs, how to file your taxes. We rely on TurboTax or uh, Hewlett, not Hewlett Packard, but Hewlett H&R, Jackson. H&R Block. Yeah. HR Block, yeah. yeah. Jackson Hewitt. That's Jackson why I had, Hewitt. It, I had it reversed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we rely on those pieces of software, again, to just kind of steer you. And you're not learning. They're just saying, punch in this, punch in this. Okay, it's done. But you're not learning yep. anything. And that that really just boggles my mind because people then get to situations in life where they make a lot of bad decisions and they don't even know they're bad until it's too late. They're yep. educated to make bad decisions. And people say, oh, invest in your 401k. Okay, that's fine. But what if there were other things you could also invest in that you could access money before you're 59 and a half? Yeah. Like, who wants to only work until you're 59 and a half and then tap out? And for some people, when you're you know, older, you can't enjoy life the way you want to. Like, yeah. There's just so many things like that that I just don't understand why we miss basic education. Uh, and the list goes on. Yeah. How to get a mortgage. How to finance a car. Uh, how to invest. What are mutual funds? What's a money market account? What's, I mean, in today's world, what's cryptocurrency? Yeah. People hear the get rich quick stories on crypto. And they're like, oh, I'll, I'll buy into that. And they do it blind, uneducated, because yeah. they see the chasing the, the dollar and they're just blindly doing it. So, yeah, that, that's just such a huge hot button for me. And schools really miss that. I mean, the society really fails each other in setting that up. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, there are so many things, as you just said there, that have that people aren't educated on, like cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. It is one of the more fascinating conversations. I haven't had any guest beyond and think that it was going to be something that we are going to be believing in in 15 years. But yet, it doesn't seem to go away. And then, and then you're also dealing with most of the people seem to be getting their information off of Instagram or, or Twitter and not through their own investigative resources. Yeah. What's your feeling on cryptocurrency and where it might be headed? I can be your first guest, oh. guest, I guess, because I, I like it. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the more that people try to be controlled, like the, the generations coming through, they're very rebellious. Yeah. You know, like you can't tell me what to do. I, I'm going to identify as whatever I want. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. You, you have people now out there like on TikTok, mm-hmm. literally their whole day is going around baiting like people to tell them they can't record something so that they can then get in an argument and then claim my constitutional rights are being violated, which technically I'm not saying they're not, but it's common sense. You look like a creepy weirdo if you're just walking around like with no business in a building and you're just videotaping and somebody's just asking you what you're doing and you're trying to be all shady about it. But what that person's getting is hundreds of thousands, if not millions of views and then collecting money off of that stuff. And so I think that kind of ties back into the crypto world where the gap is education. People are scared of it because it's unknown. I'm not an expert in it. Mm-hmm. I know some about it. 
I do invest in some of it. I invest in NFTs, which I do think are a thing and will stick around. Uh, but I think you're going to have a lot of that too, where people just simply say, you can't control me. And this is an asset mm -hmm. technically yeah. that's not controllable because it's held on a blockchain on the ledger and everything. Yeah. Um, you know, and so governments are kind of annoyed by it and because they can't control it. And I, I think that's where a lot of popularity comes in with it. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it'll stick around. I think there's going to have to be something that makes really currency in general more digital. Yeah. You know, again, why do we need paper? I mean, you, if you use cash now, you're kind of the weird person, you know, yep. if you go to some stores, they don't even take cash That's know, right. card only. And everything's on your phones, tickets to events, concerts, sporting events on your phone. You know, everything's digital. And yeah, so, you, you can't buy, you can't go to a Titans game or a Preds game mm -mm. with a, and buy anything with cash. No, and that's eliminated like scalpers a lot of times. I mean, oh, they're still yeah. there, but it's shrunk. You know, it's, it's a big difference now in in that world. Um, so I just think it's more and more digital, and that's going to play into the crypto market, mm -hmm. into that um, that crypto market's hands. But if uh, if you think about it, remember twenty years ago, you were the nut job if you put your credit card on the internet oh yeah you were the you are out there like man you're nuts i can't believe you would do such a thing mm -hmm. and today you're the you're the guy that's weird if you don't somebody looks at you like yeah just shoot me a venmo what's that what do you mean what's that like shoot me a paypal you know here tap our phones together and just send payment how, how do you do that you're the outsider now mm -hmm. so that's why if you just look at history, I really think from a crypto standpoint, I just think if we're honest with ourselves that we sit here today and yes, I understand why people either mock it, make fun of it, unsure of it, scared of it, whatever. Mm -hmm. But remember 20 years ago, we were scared to put credit cards on the internet. So in 20 years, it just wouldn't surprise me yeah. if crypto is a mainstay and, and not every coin because there's what, 5,000 different oh, yeah. coins out there. But, you know, the big ones, sure. Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera, I, th I think there's going to be a place for those um, in the future. I just think we kind of do the same thing over and over as humans where And do you think there'll be, there'll be lending through that, too, on what it is oh, that yeah. you do? Yeah. Is it now? There is now. Oh, there is. Yeah. Oh, right on. Yeah, it's crazy. How yeah. about that? Yeah, you can actually do some things called staking your, your Ethereum, um, which means you, you put it up. And you, you can't like withdraw it or whatever. And I'm, and I'm not perfect on it, so somebody may be listening telling me I'm all wrong. But the idea is you, you put it up, kind of like you would put a CD in a bank in a yeah. way. And then you collect interest on that, on that staking. Yeah. And then there may be like a certain period where you can't pull it out, like you're committed to a certain time frame. So that's some of the risk with it. Um, but you earn, earn yield on it on oh, the backside. Wow. So some people do that and they've got enough where they're making great money you know monthly interest mm -hmm. just a cruise so interesting yeah interesting well nfts that's another thing that kind of i wasn't <laughs> expecting to talk about nfts i have no idea about nfts where they come from why they have any value whatsoever where do you see the value and why do you see or what makes you believe so heavily in it uh going forward right now so nfts kind of got this shtick where it was, um, oh, what am I going to do with a digital JPEG? Like, that's kind of the condescending um, approach. 
from a lot of people is, mm-hmm. oh, digital art, I got a JPEG of a duck, and what am I going to do with that? You know, why is that worth $500,000? And they're kind of missing the point. It's a way to open up access and experiences and also a way to do things like tickets and collectibles, all these different things. Because uh, if you think about it now, like airplane tickets are digital. Like yep. They go to your Apple wallet, right? Or whatever wallet you have, your Google wallet, your mm-hmm. Apple wallet. Um, so they're more than just collectibles. And that's where people like have to unlock their minds a little bit. And it can be more about access and experience. Mm-hmm. So you know, let's just say you're a season ticket holder for the Titans. Well, they may give you an NFT as your season ticket. And then that NFT holds the tickets inside of it that are digitally accessed per game. And then what if there's like a piece of art on that NFT that is also the digital ticket and that piece of art, they randomly select, you know, who gets what and yours just happens to be, uh, we'll say Malik Harris, you know, and he's obviously a young player for the Titans Mm -hmm. and a rookie. And, we don't know this today, but he ends up being a Hall of Famer, and you've got the NFT from the season of 2022 that's Malik Harris's rookie season, and he's a Hall of Famer now. That then becomes worth something, mm. and it's digital. And then you can also do things like access. So you say, hey, if, if you have, if you're a Titan season ticket holder, and you have the Derrick Henry NFT, we're going to have a Derrick Henry get together at whatever club, restaurant, hotel, venue, etc. Mm-hmm. And it's only for Derrick Henry NFT people. And that's part of the ticket. Yeah. So it's things like that where you can have the access or the other special features so that it's not just a one-time, here's my ticket, or scan my ticket, mm-hmm. and go into it. And so the NFTs kind of create that extra layer of significance from that standpoint. Wow. And... They're not all going to be, not every NFT or ticket can be worth $100,000 on the internet. Yeah. You know, so when people, again, they think, oh, I'm going to strike it rich because I've got this NFT. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, but so do 50,000 other people. But sure. if you've got the Derrick Henry NFT that's from the season he ran for 2,000 yards, and oh, by the way, at the end of the season, the Titans decided they're just going to give out this little commemorative collectible to those nft people or you know it it can be done in the physical or the digital world oh wow so my wife always makes fun of me because we have some of this stuff and she uh she says so you're gonna like hang this up in our house and i'm like no i'm not gonna like no i'm not gonna put a digital art i mean you can and she said that would look so weird and i said who comes to our house and looks at the art now. Like, the picture you have of the woods, who comes over and is like, oh, that's a cool picture of the woods? Same thing. They say, Why do you, if it's digital, nobody will ever see it. Nobody sees the physical stuff we have in our house. Yeah. Except us, 95% of the time, family, friends come over, maybe, whatever. But that's my whole point. Like, we kind of get in this tunnel vision. Yeah. And, like, think about what you're saying. How many people come over to your house now? And look at what you have. I have an upstairs man cave. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge sports collector. 
Oh, wow. Love all that stuff. Autographs. and I'm, I'm big on autographs. I'm not as big on like cards, but more mm. autographs. So I have all these displays of baseballs and bats and footballs and whatnot. And I use that same thing. I'm like, whoever comes to see my display, it, it, it's really just here for me. Yeah. Well, on the digital world, there's actually a better chance people see what you own digitally because you'll share it on Instagram or Facebook sure. or you'll change it to your profile picture or you'll do all these things. Hmm. And so it's uh, it's one of those that, again, it's unknown. So people will mock it sure. or play it down or say, oh, it'll never whatever, you know, turn into anything. But again, five years from now, mm-hmm. 10 years from now, you know, are we going to be looking back at the same way we look at people who used to not put credit cards on the internet? Mm-hmm. I mean, think about 10 years ago. Would you have ever, maybe longer than that, 15 years ago, especially 20 years ago, 30 years ago? What if somebody said, hey, you'll never have paper tickets again to go see the Titans? Never have them. It's going to be on your phone only. And meanwhile, you don't even have a cell phone yeah. in 1992. That's, Je- that's Jetson's talk right yeah, there. Yeah, right? So I just say keep an open mind. 100%. Well, I was, you know, obviously you've written books, you do podcasts, you started your own company, you got your fingers in a bunch of cool things. What would you say are the processes and systems that you've employed that give you the confidence that you can take on new things? And what are your keys to success in those arenas? So I would say, I mean, people probably get tired of hearing, um, you know, all the Alabama stuff if you're around me and I know you know I live in Nashville so I hear a bunch of stuff or whatever but Nick Saban's the greatest football coach of all time maybe you find one or two people to debate that against Mm -hmm. but especially in college hands down you know number one and so just because I went to Alabama he coaches Alabama you know I see stuff not personally not like with my own eyes but you're just constantly hearing reading watching him Mm -hmm. and so i just love all of his processes and kind of the attitude and he's always coaching more against perfection than he is against the other team per se for sure it's just coaching against a standard and so that's and it's it's really hard to do that like because i sit there and think i'm tired at the end of the day and it's like i'll do this one tomorrow Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what separates people you know, it's like, no, I'm just going to go ahead and do it now. Yeah. So I've really tried um, to implement just that thought process. Like, it's never enough. There's always something else to do. There's always somebody doing more. Mark Cuban always says, work every day like somebody's about to steal your job because somebody is trying to steal your job. And those are just good, like, attitudes and mindsets to have. Um, Saban, one of my favorite things he ever says is, you know, high achievers hate ordinary people, and ordinary people hate high achievers, which is so true. Yeah. Um, because they just have different mindsets, and so that's what I really push for. And I fall short all the time. Like mm. I'm unfortunately not at Nick's, <laughs> you know, headspace. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think those kinds of processes where it's just it's detailed, it's efficient. You don't waste time. You don't, you know, uh, you're respectful of others' time. Yeah. Uh, I think just having those kinds of things in place. I'm also real big on knowing everybody's job. And I used to be a control freak, and I probably still am to a certain degree, but I've gotten a lot better. Yeah. And I have really good friends 
who work with me. And I've just learned a lot of times you can just find good people that you just put them in in place and they'll go to work for you. Yeah. And maybe they aren't the best initially at that job, but they just have that mindset. And so they'll figure it out. And with your guidance or help, mm-hmm. they just get better and better and better. And then that work ethic trumps the, the previous person who maybe had a better skill set initially. Yeah. But this person's going to outwork them in the long run. So I've really tried to just stick to understanding what everyone does down to the janitor, but then putting really just good people in place and not necessarily the best resume. Yeah. It's more the best person. Um, and football coaches say that all the time, you know, like, I just have good assistants. And that's a lot of what it is, is just having good people around you. So those are really the big things, like from a 30,000-foot view that I love to do. Yeah. It's just good process, details, understand the jobs, but then just put the right people in, in place. It's interesting. Like Nick Saban probably deserves more credit for the fact that his coaching carousel mm-hmm. is so profound because everybody wants a piece of that Alabama greatness. So he probably has to retrain coaches. Yeah. Every two years, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking every year he yeah. loses at least three. And sometimes it might be the special teams coach that goes to be the defensive coordinator at some place. But mm-hmm. any, any way you slice it, he runs a very precise and pristine program from the smallest fundamental of kick return or you know or field goal unit all the way up into how the offense is a defensive mm-hmm. ef- efficiently run. Yeah. And – he is the CEO. It's interesting. He probably he doesn't – he has coaches. He's the CEO and the coach's yeah. coach, and then he oversees the coaching. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and yeah, he interjects <clears throat> when he needs to. Yeah. yeah. And I think what, what makes him special is that he thrived in the old school version of coaching, which we would call Bryant, Paterno, yep. Bowden. Yep. He, he thrived – the beginning of his career – thrived in the end of their runs. Mm-hmm. Bear Bryant was probably a fraction before Saban, but not Paterno and not Bowden. Right. Um, and then with all of the changes that have come through social media, uh, the fact that when I was growing up, I was lucky if – I'm a Penn State fan. So I was lucky if three Penn State games were on a year. Mm-hmm. And they were almost always the game we played against Alabama, the game we played against Nebraska, and the game we played against Notre Dame. Yeah. And when Pitt had Dan Marino and Tony Dorsett, we got on the fourth time. Other than that, you had to wait till Sunday morning to watch the highlights on the highlight show. <laughs> now there is, I can't even remember the last time Penn State wasn't on television. Yep. You know, I can't remember the last time Alabama wasn't on television. So access and the, how important and how much money <clears throat> is involved first in media and now it's shifting to the name image and likeness issue yeah. that he is speaking so profoundly on and how that's going to affect um sports especially college sports and i think that that parallels what it is that you're talking about in your business which is the more things change the more adaptable you have to be and more open-minded you have to be to certain things being possible that we literally never thought possible before yeah, and I believe <clears throat> I listened to that Paul Feinbaum interview with about Saban, where this might be it for him. This might like this nil thing might be what breaks it breaks Saban's desire 
because it is it is weighing on him. And now you're starting to see there's going to be a Nick Saban who's like 33 somewhere right now that is figuring out how to thrive and coach these kids that are now semi-professionally paid. Right. Um, and it's not like it used to be. And I think what makes it hard is he's getting older and he has built a process and a foundation of how things work. And now it'll work, but it's much, much harder to get these kids to buy in when they are yeah. not, they're not that hungry right. anymore. And to me, you know, Jocko Willink and Goggins talk about it all the time. You give two people the same amount of ability. I'm taking the hungriest mm-hmm. for you sure. Know, the hungriest person is going to come out. So, you know, I think I think Bryce Young made a pretty penny last year, and and I don't know he's not the issue for Alabama this year for no, sure. No. <clears throat> but he certainly senses that there's a problem, and it's pretty obvious. Alabama's playing as uncharacteristically poor with as much talent as they've ever had that I that I can recall, and the level of frustration is so evident on his face that you know something's up. <clears throat> Bryce Young which is crazy to say because he did win a national title last year. Came close. Yeah. And came close with a depleted roster. Yeah. Which was impressive. Not going to win it this year. I mean, all hell would have to break loose yeah, for sure. for, to even get in this year. Um, but Bryce Young may be the best quarterback Alabama's ever had. For sure. Which is saying something considering you just ran through Jalen Hurts, who has the undefeated Eagles right now. Mm-hmm. Who would have ever thought that guy would be an NFL starting quarterback with an undefeated team halfway mm-hmm. through the year? Then you've got Tua, yep. who looks fantastic with the Dolphins now that he's back and healthy again yep. from his concussion. And you got Mac Jones, who has struggled, was amazing in college, and has struggled a little bit with New England, but we'll see if he figures it out down the road. But then Bryce Young may be the best one yeah. of the four. But, like you said, it's crazy that Alabama may have their best quarterback ever. They've got the best defender, arguably, they've ever had with Will Anderson Jr. Yeah. And they're a two-loss team with three games to go, and they could actually easily lose to Ole Miss. So we're doing this before the Ole Miss game this yeah, Saturday. That's right. And probably not going to lose to Austin P and, and Auburn. Or, yeah. But... You could have a three-loss Bama team for the first time in 12 years, in 2010, which was the year after Nick won his first national title at Alabama. So the thing that – and I'm fine, Bob may be right. People have speculated it. One of my friends said the same thing the other night after the game. He said, this could actually be it. This might be the end. And this isn't the first time the end question has come up. Yeah. And if you go back and look, you know, there was the whole Saban's not happy at Bama because of the expectations and the fans are annoying, which they are. But And so he's thinking about Texas, you know, or he leveraged Texas to get a raise. And then the report that came out that said after the 2013 season, Saban had had enough and was going to go into media and be on ESPN or game day or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you got all these things, right? And then also, then people started saying, oh, the game has changed. You know, the first national title was won with defense and a pro-style offense. Greg McElroy in that 09 game against Texas threw for 78 yards. And Alabama won 37 to 28, I think yep. it was, something like that. Uh, <clears throat> if you look, they were running the Wildcat with Mark Ingram. That's right. In 09. Saban had to completely change everything 
and he moved to Lane Kiffin as offensive coordinator and then ran that wide-open RPO spread, hurry-up, no-huddle. Like They became Auburn with Gus Malzahn, yep. who Alabama made fun of for years. And, and that's what happened. So he's always adapted. He's always pivoted. He's always changed. They literally have created recruiting rules uh, because of Nick Saban. Yeah. So, but you're right. This is just another one of those pivot points. And it's like, all right, NIL's here. It's not going anywhere. So, can a guy like Saban, whose whole pitch has always been, I'll give you opportunity, I won't guarantee you anything, and I will get you to the NFL, but you're going to have to earn it. And people would come to Alabama, even if they would only play one or two years on the field mm-hmm. because they knew they would get that spotlight, get to the NFL. It was the fast track, which ultimately leads to money. Yeah. Now, if a kid goes to Alabama or to Ole Miss or to Tennessee or to A&M or to USC or Oregon or wherever, and they're getting $500,000 checks from Nike, how hungry, like you said, even though that kid is foolish because the 500 pales in comparison to the $20 million contract in the NFL that you should be really grinding for. Oh, but yeah. you're right. And that's what he's going to have to figure out next. If it's truly a motivational problem, Bryce Young got a million last year NIL. That's okay. right. Again, he's not the problem. But some of those kids are getting checks. And it's like a friend of mine, I forgot what game it was, maybe Mississippi State a few weeks ago, Bama and State. And he said, I think I think this player is making what he calls business decisions. Meaning, he's playing, he's there, but he's not about to risk the big injury or yeah. or getting hurt or anything because he's got his NIL money and now he's just kind of coasting trying to get to the to the NFL. Yeah, how do you how do you think you know, it's it's interesting because this is not that dissimilar to this NFT talk. It's just like the projection of where it could go and what it's going to do to all, well, not all college sports. Obviously, the big three, baseball, basketball, and football, are going to be the first to reap the benefits. But then it's going to start to go into other sports. And I would think golf is going to end up being one because of the, you know, what golf attracts at the highest level, which is the financial institutions, the insurance institutions, and the big brands of eliteness like Mercedes-Benz, Rolex, what have you. How do you sense that NIL, that how similar it is to the other conversations that we've had, NFT, what have you, and how adaptability yeah. and foresight play a critical role in being able to go into the future? <clears throat> I don't think there's any question, especially football. You know, basketball's so different. In football, Appalachian State beats Michigan. That kind of thing happens once every 30 years. You know, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, and I'm not even talking about an unranked team upsetting a top 10 team. Because Notre Dame just did that against Clemson. Yeah. I'm talking about an App State beating Michigan on the road. Never happens in football. So extremely rare. Basketball, baseball, those things aren't as uncommon. I mean, you see double-digit uh, seeds get into the Final Four. You know, you, yep. you'll you see some, some upsets middle of the year, like some crazy 
small, tiny school up in the upper peninsula of Michigan, you know, beat Michigan State yep. one time. Um, it's just not that uncommon. It's still rare, but it's not like crazy uncommon. So I think football will separate itself. It's also the biggest moneymaker by sure. far. It's yeah. not even close. It wins with TV rights. It wins with just stadiums and game day and revenue and everything and how many people can mm-hmm. you know can kind of you think about it a eighty thousand foot or foot eighty thousand person stadium yeah uh, you have that seven eight home games a year that's five hundred and sixty thousand uh, people six hundred and forty thousand. <laughs> Paying a hundred bucks a seat, hot dogs, cokes, all that stuff. Adds up in a hurry. So I really think football is just going to be its own thing, and I do see, you know, between two and four mega conferences, uh, maybe maybe just three. Um, mm-hmm. Jury's out on that. I don't know what's going to break the back on that one because they're expanding the playoff. So that. Yep. That kind of nullifies the need to join the gigantic conference from a getting in sure. perspective. Um, it still hurts to be left out from a money perspective. For sure. But I think football will just kind of be its own away from basketball and baseball because you just don't have the same parity. Yeah. Like you just you don't have the same opportunity for upsets and things like that. Um, so it's it's a little harder to include everybody. Mm-hmm. So I, I think football will kind of have its own and you're going to see almost like a junior NFL. Yeah. You know, like a 40, that's to, the feeder league, a 40 to 60 from more than 40, you know, like a 50 to 70 type mm-hmm. college football. And then you can still have just like you have today, your FCS and mm-hmm. whatever else. But I, I think you're going to have like 50 to 70 um, type setup. And you know, one thing I would think of too, and and I'm not a lawyer, and I'm not, you know, a, a high level executive accountant. But one thing I would be thinking of that would make me nervous if I was Vanderbilt, if I was Rutgers, if I was Duke, if I was Northwestern, all these teams that are in these mega major power conferences. Um, it was always a, uh, it was always a situation where they're part of the conference; they have been forever. And the whole academic thing and this and whatnot. There's going to get to a certain point where if you're that bad at that sport all the time, there may not be a spot for you. you yep. know, Or it may be a basketball-only thing for you. And yep. you got to go play over here. So I, I don't know. You know, I mean, the NFL still has the Lions and the Jaguars, right? So they, <laughs> there's always a bad team. <laughs> but, right. but there's got to be something where every now and then you've got a good team or a good year. I don't know. I don't know how that plays into it, but you just kind of think of it. It's yeah. like, man, is, is Vanderbilt, is Rutgers, are they really teams that we're going to let? Because if you could argue that Tulane this year, for example, they're a top 20 team. Yeah. So Tulane's sitting here going, why, why does Vanderbilt get the luxury of being in? Yeah. But, but we don't. So I don't know how you fix that. But I, I do think football will kind of become its own at some point. Yeah, I think you're, right. you're definitely right there. Golf is a uh, is a fascinating sport. One, because it's never going to die because there's hardly anything left in life where you get to spend four or five hours with somebody <laughs> that really want to be there. And you get to spend time with, generally speaking, either your family, your kids, 
or in a business setting that's really important to you. How would you say golf has played a role, positively and or negatively, in your business life and your recreation slash joyful part of your life? You know what I love about golf is not that other sports aren't hard. They are. Mm -hmm. But you can find some people who, there are more people who can go out and just shoot a free throw or hit a jumper, Mm -hmm. make a three-pointer. There are more people that can do that by far than the number of people that can swing a golf club and hit the golf ball. Yeah. It's not even close. And maybe that's because golf's barrier to entry is just harder. You know, it costs more money. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, only so many places to go kind of thing. I don't know. But um, what I love about golf is, one, how hard it is. Like, it's, golf's one of those sports, like, it's really cool to be really good. Oh, yeah. Like, if you can walk around and strut and be like, I'm a four, four handicap. Everybody's like, I'm not playing with you. You get embarrassed playing with you, you know. Um, that's what's fun about golf is just how hard it is when you get to a certain level, what kind of a small group you become a part of when you get to that level, you're battling against perfection because it's such a tough game physically, mentally, you got to like think nonstop all around the course, what to do, what not to do, control your emotions, control what kind of shot you're going to hit, go for it, lay up, lay up, and you look like a sissy, you know, and you go for it and you hit it in the water, you look like an idiot, and it's like, oh, not as strong as you thought you were, huh? But yeah. then you lay up, and then people make fun of you. <laughs> so exactly it's, right. It's like, well, I'm a no-win situation, um, and that's me because I'm, I'm not a long hitter. Uh, but that's what I love about it. Also, just um, I think it gets too too much of the, like, etiquette i'm one of those like new school Mm -hmm. i I like some of the traditional stuff and the pageantry yeah uh but it also has a lot of archaic and dated things about it for sure that are just stupid that need to be changed but um i also just like how it's an honor system yeah when you go out here and play with your buddies there is no cbs camera or golf channel or nbc zooming in and being like that ball oscillated in place as he was swinging and he didn't call himself on it or something you know Mm -hmm. out here yeah you don't have that and it's literally an honor system like can you in good conscience (laughs) go tell your buddies you owe me five bucks for that hole when you moved it or when it you know rolled in a hazard and you had a crappy lie and there's nothing you can do about it or yeah, that. Yep. So, I like the competitiveness, the honor system, the uh, the physical, the mental, and I think that really helps. You know, there's no sport like it. There really isn't, and yeah. I I just think all those things um, play a role in it. Because from a business perspective, it's like you got to keep your emotions in check. You got to critically think. You got to problem solve. You know, you got to understand when to take risk, when not to take risk, like going for the green. Yeah. Like all those things. Somebody may be like, well, that's, that's kind of dumb. You're relating flying it over a creek versus, you know, going out on your own in business. But still, you kind of, those are the same characteristics. If you're a gambler, if yeah. you're an always go for it kind of guy, well, you're going to go for the green in two and you're going to start your own business. That's right. If you're the conservative guy, there's nothing wrong with it. 
is you may make birdie while the other guy's taking a drop and hitting four. That's right. But but to me, that's just what's cool about it is it's um, just such a, a fun game. It's also, too, like I've never played really in big tournaments or anything. Mm-hmm. In fact, this year was the first year I got to play in the club championship and didn't do well. Didn't finish last, but didn't do well. And when you're playing in that, it's a sport where baseball, there's nine guys. You make one mistake, there's a guy next hole or next inning makes a worse mistake. They forget about yours. Somebody else could back you up. You make an error. Somebody's there to help you pick it up and throw the ball back in, something yep. like that. Basketball, five guys, same thing. Teammates. Golf? It's you. That's it. That's right. It is all you. And it's a lonely, lonely place when things go bad. Especially if it's early in the round. Yeah. It turns into the four-hour Bataan death march. So that was uh, that was it. That was, so we have what's called the Black Tea Championship here from the tips. And from like my handicap today is 4.3. From the black, though, you know, I'm going to shoot low 80s is, mm-hmm. is about what I'm going to hit. That'd be a good score. Yeah, like mm-hmm. that's that's going to be my Stuck. normal score. If I broke 80 from the tips, I'd be ecstatic, be thrilled. And so Black Tea Championship, didn't expect to win, but I just wanted to, I wanted to feel what it was like yeah. to play in that. So I do up on the first tee, and I hit baby cuts off the tee 90% of the time. And I line up down the left edge, but I'm nervous as hell. 20 people standing around. I'm not used to any, I'm not used to more than three other people standing right. around watching. 20, 30 people standing around, just hanging out, watching, whatever. First time in it. Smoke it. Dead left pull into the houses, <laughs> out of bounds, right off the tee. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, you got to be kidding me. And you're right, because that first hole, I made a 15 footer downhill, breaking probably three feet for a nine. That was for a nine. <laughs> make the nine. Uh, and, you know, you make one bad shot, and then I'm sitting there like, I'm almost shaking hitting your next shot. Yeah. And then your next shot. And it's like, Jesus, can you just get in the hole? Like, just get in the hole, and let's just go to the next one. And there is no, nah, just give me a double and pick up and walk off. Like, That's you have to finish. finish. Um, oh, that was so embarrassing. But past that... I think I made like, you know, par, par, and then a bogey, bogey or something. But it was like after that first hole and you got it out of the way, the rest of that front nine, I think I played it like four over. So I played eight holes, four over. Yeah. So if I could redo one and just make bogey, it's like a 41 on the front. I'm like, well, that's me. That's an 82, you know, on the from the tips. Like, that's me. But yeah, it's... It's a weird game, man. It really because you is get a out weird there game. and you start shaking and all these things enter your head and you just want to go hide in the trees. Well, golf is unique one because compared to a reaction sport like football, basketball, baseball, tennis, when the ball's moving, our body's natural response is a lot more coordinated and a lot more natural. Mm-hmm. Golf is a responsive sport where the ball's sitting still and we have to create 
the motion uh-huh. to make it go straight. Then you also have the fact that in in baseball, a line drive down the third base line is a double, and a line drive down the third base line in golf is out of bounds. And they had they don't have equal reward systems. And I tell people, can you imagine how hard baseball would be if the only place you could hit it would be over the pitcher's head into center field? Mm-hmm. It's already a really hard game, and if you limited it to having to hit it straight all the time, yep. whew, that would be profoundly difficult. So, and so as a golfer, would you say that you're more addicted to the strategy and or the nuances of the game or are you addicted to the technical side of being a better ball striker or a better hitter of the ball strategy strategy all day yeah because i will play with guys i'm the most annoying match play opponent you could have i get beaten stroke play because what i'll do is i'll go out and play 18 and 15 of the holes i'll play five over the other three i'll play seven over yeah and then i shoot 84 yep that's what'll happen but you could see me like those guys were in my group in the tournament their impression because i'd only played with one of them one time mm-hmm. their impression's like why is this guy in the black tee championship after one hole as the as the nine goes on one even said to me if you hadn't had number one, you'd be in the mix of making the cut. It's like, yeah, thanks for reminding me. I already yep. knew that. You didn't mm-hmm. have to tell me. Like, yep. That's already in my brain. But I'm such an annoying match play opponent because I have – I'm I'm fine. Like, I don't try to be the long hitter. Mm-hmm. I don't try to be the show-off, the ball striker, the oh – my God, he hit a 7-iron 200. Like, that's not me. Yeah. And so I'm perfectly fine – with hitting it down the middle, laying up, hitting a wedge to 15 feet, and either making birdie or having a kick in. Yeah. Like I, or I'm okay. Like, I don't panic. As I make the joke, I've always been in the trees. So I'm great out of the trees. Like, I can be over there, and you're in the fairway, and I punch out down to the, you know, bottom of the fairway. Yep. Get up and down. You get up and down in golf, you'll drive people nuts. Nuts. Yep. Nuts. Yep. I played in a game a week or two ago, a week ago, and uh, that was the thing. We played Wolf, which is a game where people listening, I'm sure they know, but you either pick a partner off the tee box, and it's you and the partner versus the other two, or you can go lone wolf by yourself. Yeah. Or if you're really cocky, you can go blind wolf before you, go you even blind lone wolf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So... I hit a three wood, and it was good, middle of the fairway, and I knew I had a like 105 yards out, and so I said, all right, it's a short par four, I'll take it, and I'll go by myself on this one. And so, other guys, two of the three hit good shots, I was like, that's two on one here. So we get up there, they both hit theirs to, I don't know, 15, 20 feet on the green, so one of them has par. You know, yeah. Not They won't both three putt, so I'm like, all right, I've got to hit my wedge, you know, tight, be aggressive, and hit it a little bit off the toe, just a touch. So it kind of flares, doesn't compress, ends up in the greenside bunker, short right. Mad at myself. So they make par, neither made birdie. I flop it out of the sand and make about a 10-footer for par. And that went from no dots to getting a sandy dot and being a lone wolf, so getting it against everybody, and it's just mm-hmm. funny because it wasn't a big deal because it was only two bucks. Sure. But when you do that, I made two Sandys that day. 
And when you make so one, I could be better because I could just not hit it in the sand. Sure. But when you aren't like perfect and precise and hitting it to eight feet all the time like the pros do to make birdie, and yeah. then they make all the birdie putts, they don't miss those. But when you can scramble your way out of the woods and make bogey or save a par, mm-hmm. or you hit it in the bunker and you get up and down, or you get greenside and you get up and down, you will drive people nuts, especially if they're on in regulation. And then you have the hole. Yeah. Drives them insane. Because in their mind, they've won. Yep. They don't expect you. So you get up and down. Shifting the momentum. Yeah. Shifting the momentum. It's fascinating because, you know, to me, golf and life are so tied together. Like, you could literally have the best game plan. Like, you just had hit three wood in the middle of the fairway. You got a wedge in your hand. And you had all the right intentions. Mm-hmm. You did all the right things. You thought the right things. And then you it just didn't work out. Yeah. And the ability for a lot of people to have a good plan in life and it not work out the way they intended or even get a bad situation out of a good intention, it's really hard for people to cope with their best intentions coming up short or failing mm-hmm. what's what are some of the things that you cling to when it comes we'll call this the perseverance piece what is it that you that you cling to when it comes to difficult moments or when the plan doesn't go as well that you that you that are part of your process is to handle adversity well first back to what you were saying you basically were saying life isn't fair and i think people should understand that and know that that it's not and you do create your own opportunities and momentum. Mm-hmm. I truly believe that. Um, and me and one of my business partners, we kind of talk about this with certain people. You have people in life who are checkbox people. And what we mean by that is they go, well, I did this, and I did this, and I did this. Why am I not successful? It's like, because there's more to it. If it was just a checklist, everybody would be successful. Or they there would be mm-hmm. more people being successful. That's right. You know, so it's it's more than just a checklist. So I do this, this, this. Why am I not successful? And it's like, because sometimes life is just a jerk, you know? <laughs> it just pisses you off. That's right. It doesn't go the way it's supposed to. You know, there's a, there's a wind gust in the middle of the ball flight, and that's why you come up on a false front instead of next to the hole. That's you right. Know? It's just, that's the way it is. Um, things I cling to, though... Um, you know, when things, you said when things aren't going my way, mm-hmm. you know, that's really it. Like, I've just kind of accepted it. I told somebody yesterday, because new company and everything, so many projects, like so many things to do from building websites to, and we outsource that, but like just outsourcing that and then reviewing it and auditing it and approving it and then merchandise and marketing and hiring and payroll and accounting and HR, like, all those things and it can get overwhelming things don't go your way they get sideways Mm -hmm. and whatever and i've really really tried to get myself into more just like being being in the present moment yeah and i just remind myself it's like you know what you you got to have the bad day or the annoying day to get to the good day yeah and and that's all cliche and i know people are like oh sound like a little rah-rah guy but it really is like just dummy down for me a lot of times mm-hmm. where it's like I'm just trying to be present. Yesterday, I just said, look, I've done all I can. It's 6 o'clock. I'm going to go downstairs, hang out with the kids, 
eat dinner. Mm-hmm. I'll work some more when they go to sleep at nine thirty or so. But you know, I've just really learned to accept things don't go the way you plan, mm-hmm. and it is what it is. Um, and I, I think some of that's from we had. I've never had anybody close in my family die, and then in twenty nineteen, uh, my wife's dad, who I was good friends with, mm-hmm. because he he had three girls, so I was the first guy mm-hmm. in the family. And so me and him would hang out, go to games, watch TV, whatever together. And so he got hit with uh, pancreatic cancer Ooh. and was gone in four months. Not even, I think it was two months, three months. Wow. It was quick. Just very quick. And you just think about it, it's like, man, that guy worked his whole life. He was a really hard worker, um, dedicated to a company for over 30 years, and then dies at 59. And it's like, didn't even get to enjoy things. Yeah. I mean, he did, but you know what I'm saying? Just, he didn't know his, his clock was up. Um, and then my granddad, uh, died in 2020, not from COVID. It was right before COVID started. Actually. Um, he had dementia for a long time and just by March of 2020, that was it. Um, you know, ran out of time and, but he was the guy that would go to games you know, go on trips, do all these things. And and he lived a, a longer life. He was 77. But still, it's kind of young. Like, yeah. there's no reason to not live into your 80s, 90s, you know, with today, today's For sure. advances and whatever. Um, you know, things pop up like pancreatic cancer. But that's, to me, like, the whole reason and point of just is what it is. You know, you just got to do the mo- in the moment. You know, be present um, and just let it go because you could dwell on it. And I still dwell on things. I mean, I'm far from just being able to shut it out. Sure. But, uh, that's really what I try to do is just, hey, be thankful for, for what is here currently. Yeah. And just keep working. And if you keep working, I mean, what do you do if you're a baseball player and a hitter and you're in a slump? You go one for 20. Like Altuve, what was he in the World Series? Like it took him forever to get a hit. That's right. But you think they benched Altuve? Mm, no. So what do you do? You know, it's like, oh, I went over five, four straight games. Yeah. I quit. I mean, what do you do? Yeah. You know. So it's just one of those. It is you just be happy you're there, enjoy it, um, understand it's part of the process, and just go on. Yeah, it's it's funny how the the true greats. You know, Michael Jordan be three for 19 through the first three quarters. Mm-hmm. And he's thinking, they're all in trouble because there's no way that's lasting. I'm yeah. Michael Jordan. Yeah. Versus there are some people that are three for 19 and they're just like, tonight's just not my night. I think LeBron has a little bit of that. <laughs> you know, LeBron goes three for 19 and he's going to be a facilitator in the fourth quarter. He's going to drive to the basket and dish it to somebody that's open because mm-hmm. he feels like it's not his night. Or Jordan, Kobe, mm, no chance. Yeah. I'm shooting the shot that matters. I don't care what am I, if I'm three for 39, I'm going four for 40. Yeah. If it matters. And that mindset, that mindset of when you're having a bad day is, it's my momentum. It's almost my turn because there's no way this can keep going. Yeah. Versus pouty poopy pants (laughs) and woe is me and I'll wait till, I'll wait for another day to show up. It's interesting because I think, I think Kobe and Michael, get a little bit of a bad reputation for being such hard asses. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, 
if you look past maybe the delivery mechanism of their their way, I mean, we're all dreaming that we could have that kind of resilience. Oh yeah. And there's a little bit of jealousy in that and that shun away that we give them. But you know, that mindset's really that that's really important stuff. Yeah, it is. The second half of the show is well, now that we've talked about the things that you do to drain your batteries, the things <laughs> that you like to do to charge your batteries, and you mentioned that you're a, a sports nut and a sports memorabilia nut. What is your uh what is your prized autograph? <laughs> so I've actually got a few and a couple of them are not sports related. So mm. so we go back to NFTs. Mm-hmm. This is where it kind of started. So I went to this conference called VCon, and it's put on by Gary Vaynerchuk. Mm-hmm. And some people know him, some don't. Um, I'm surprised more don't. He's got like 10 million followers on Instagram. Yeah, he's, he's spectacular. He, he's an amazing, amazing person, entrepreneur, all that good stuff. Um, such a genius marketer, too. And so he has built VFriends, is what it's called. That's the project. And so he had a VCon. And again, that's where... He did 10,000 tickets um, for his first inaugural series. Mm-hmm. And if you were one of the 10,000 who bought, you got a ticket with that NFT to go to VCon for three years. Oh. So it was in May in Minnesota. So I go, a um, couple of my buddies, because I had multiple NFTs of his. Because um, I just believe in Gary. He's one of those, like, I don't know enough about NFTs. I know some, but I'm betting on Gary. Yeah. Like, Gary is the reason I'm buying this project. And so me and some buddies go up there and they had this in one section. It was at the Vikings stadium, U S bank stadium or something like that. Mm-hmm. In one section of the, of the stadium, they had like this kind of flea market type place and it was collectibles and like old Nintendo games and crazy memorabilia and shoes and jackets. And just kind of all like for comic nerds and sports freaks. Yeah. Like that's what it was. So I go up to these guys, and they're fantastic. They're, uh, their name is Brigandi Collectibles. They're out of Manhattan in New York. So they come in, and I'm looking at some of the stuff. And I'm just like, man, this stuff is so cool. And I'm so jealous. Like, it's all right here. And um, the other thing with crypto is, like, one Ethereum today is worth, like, 1500 bucks. Well, what sounds more expensive, $1,500 or one Ethereum? 1500 bucks. Right. You... Uh, like I can't give you fifteen hundred. Oh, I'll just give you one Ethereum. Not a big deal. Yeah. Same money, but that's how we think. So I was telling the guys, I was like talking to them for a minute. I said, if you would price your stuff in ETH, you'd sell more. They're like, we don't even have a digital wallet. I said, if you will go get a digital wallet set up, I will buy a lot of stuff from you. And he's like, okay, because I said I'm not going to take the time to transfer the ETH into US, what's called USDC, USD coin, and then transfer the coin into US dollars and then do a dollar transfer into my bank. I was like, weekend will be over. We'll never do it. I was like, if you get a digital wallet, I will mm-hmm. I will pay you Ethereum for these some of these items. I said, uh, they kind of like, yeah, okay, okay. The next day, I came back up. Did you ever get a wallet? They said, we actually did. I was like, okay, here's my offer. And so I listed everything. And before that, my top possessions, I'm a huge Ryan Sandberg fan. Mm. Grew up a Cubs fan. Sure. Sandberg was my guy. So I've got one that says Ryan Sandberg and Hall of Fame uh, on it. And then I've also got uh, a baseball bat signed by Willie Mays. 
um, a football signed by Gene Stallings. Um, and then my granddad gave me, when he passed, my grandmother gave it to me, uh, an autograph stand mutual bat. So those are like my best. Yeah. And I got some other autograph balls and stuff, but those were the best that I'm like serious about. So anyway, I make an offer and I end up coming away. I did two different orders with them and I end up coming away with Kobe Bryant autograph basketball. I wanted the jersey. Somebody beat me to it. But that's a big one just because, obviously, Kobe passed. Mm-hmm. So no more Kobe autographs that's right. will come into existence. So that was a big one for me. Um, a Hannes Wagner autograph photo. Wow. It's framed. It's very nice. Um, an autograph. So there are, uh, what was it, the first 14 players that ever hit 500 home runs in Major League Baseball. I have an autograph on one ball of numbers four through 14. Wow. So the only three missing are Ruth, uh, Jimmy Fox and Mel Ott. Then, but the ball has mantle, uh, Henry Aaron, Ernie Banks, Willie Mays, Willie Mays. so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Willie McCovey's in that group, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I believe Ted Williams is on there. Yes. Too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, a lot of great names. I think Mike Schmidt is the most recent name, and then it goes backwards in yeah, time. But interesting. Yeah, really cool baseball. Um, How about that? The, the ball, though, that's the prize possession is a baseball autographed by Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb. Wow. Same ball. And I was like, that's incredible. Like, to hold a ball in your hand, what's well, in a case, but to hold a ball that you're sitting there going, Babe Ruth held this thing and signed it. Like, it's just almost weird. Yeah. Um, and then I grabbed a Jordan autographed jersey. Um, grabbed one of those. But the two probably best autographs, um, I don't know if Ruth is right there, but I went outside of sports. So these guys, they do all autographs. Thomas Edison, uh, other presidents like Obama, Biden, Carter, Nixon. Um, they had a bunch. Um but the two that I grabbed were Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. Wow. And to me, those were so cool and the story and everything behind them. So Lincoln's is an envelope. And back in the day, he autographed the top right corner. I was like, that's a weird spot, but it is his hand. And they said, well, back then, postage was extremely expensive because it wasn't set up like it is today. Yeah. And so if you were the president, you could autograph the top right corner of an envelope and it was free postage. So that's why he did it. It was a letter going, the letter wasn't in there. It was just the envelope. Interesting. But it was a letter to a member of the house of representatives at the time. And so I've got that. And then the Washington piece is a torn off bottom piece of a lottery ticket from the late or 1760s or seventies. They created a lottery in Virginia to fix the roads and King George in England did not like that and ended the lottery. And so this was, it's not the whole ticket. It's just the Washington signature part. But the really cool wow. thing was it was rated a 9 out of 10. So it's almost in perfect condition. Wow. And so those are uh, like my favorite, favorite hey, pieces. Yeah. And I've got like a small short list and I'm just slowly trying to, like Jackie Robinson's one I really want. Um, it's sometimes hard to find. Yeah, I think Cy Young would be cool. 
Um, but I'm all about the stuff that you can't get anymore. Because we, me and the guys made the joke, the great thing about a Babe Ruth baseball, Babe Ruth's not going to go send an offensive tweet next week. That's going to just tank his value. That's right. You know? I mean, you, I don't know. Who, who are some guys that have kind of tanked in reputation as they've gotten older? I mean, Antonio Brown, yeah. Brett Favre. For uh, sure, Kanye West. Kanye West. He is on the struggle bus. Pete Rose. Pete Rose. And the problem with Rose, all-time hits leader, but the only way he can make money is sign autographs. So there's a million autographs of Rose out there, so they're not rare. Um, so some of those things factor into yeah. into what I collect, but hmm. but it's fun. Wow, that's really cool. I'm more of a baseball card, football card guy. Now, I haven't collected in a long time, Yeah, but I was just snooping around like I had... I had recently just moved, right? So I'm, I saw that I had the entire set of 1983 Kellogg's, like those th- those Fleer, not like like they're that they, they, when you tilted them they moved a little bit. Okay, they're super rare. My dad got it for me for Christmas in 1983, really? and it's got like J.R. Richard, Nolan Ryan, Steve Carlton. Uh. You know the you know Cal Ripken's a rookie. You know? <laughs> yeah, and there's like 114 cards in the set, right? And it's worth like seven grand. Wow, and I'm like, that's crazy. Wow, that's it's crazy. pretty. It's pretty insane. And I got, you know, when I grew up, I was a huge. My dad was a huge Steve Carlton fan. He's a huge Phillies fan. So, and I was a left-handed pitcher. And until I tore my rotator cuff, pitching was my only thing. And so I, I fell in love with Steve Carlton and Nolan Ryan. I love J.R. Richard. I love the Houston Astros uniforms. And that's what like drew me. I'm, it's funny. Like all of my favorite uniforms have orange in them. Really? Yeah. It's really strange because <laughs> I I was I like the Orioles. Okay. I like Virginia Cavaliers. They got like old school uniforms. The Orioles. Do, oh by yeah. The way. Yeah. That's yeah. great. So I like when the, when Ralph Sampson played for Virginia, I became a huge Cavaliers fan. Okay. Uh, Broncos. John Elway. It's yep. like all <laughs> of these things have orange in them. It's kind of funny, um, but I just think that. When I look back, I have all these John Elway cards, all these Dwight Gooden cards. I love Dwight Doc, Gooden. Yeah. And Steve Carlton. And I was just looking through like so Carlton's not really going anywhere. You know, he's right. kind of a forgotten, but he's he's a legend and they're not as valuable as I thought. And I really messed up too. If you remember back when McGuire was hit seven or not hit, hit broke Maris's record, mm-hmm. his Olympic baseball card was worth like eight hundred and eighty dollars. And I have like eight of them. And now they're like worth nothing. Yeah, like Wire's actually a good one, as far as like yeah, tanking reputation. Yeah, him, Clemens, Sosa, Bonds, Bonds. Yeah, uh, those are definite ones that Palmero. That's that's the big five right there. Yeah, uh, McGuire grew up in Huntsville, mm-hmm. so McGuire with Conseco was with the A's. Yeah, so the A's were the stars in Huntsville were the A's affiliate back then oh wow so those guys played in huntsville for a very short time and i had uh this was i sold it around that 98 season i had a mark mcguire one of those like minor league cards Mm -hmm. from a burger king set you know you like buy a whopper meal and you get a baseball pack or something Mm -hmm. so i had a mcguire one it was in perfect condition how about that and i went to a flea market um we were selling stuff and i i sold it um and i was 13 i guess 13 14 at the time i I think i sold it for like 100 bucks 
I don't know if I ripped the guy off or if I made out like a bandit. <laughs> but McGuire and Sosa were so hot yeah. for that last couple of years in the 90s that anything with their names on it, people wanted. Yeah. And basically that guy was like, yeah, I'll do 100 13 years old like hell yeah, yeah sign no me kidding up. <laughs> how'd you get to be such a diehard cub fan uh so when i was growing up my granddad the one who passed um always doing baseball stuff with him and because i was in my family the first boy child of everyone mm-hmm. first kid first grandkid first nephew the whole deal and so i would play sports nonstop because that was my granddad's thing yeah and so I would be like the bat boy at the little league games for their team and, you know, do all that stuff. And uh, the Cubs were always on WGN every day. Harry and Steve. Yep. 120. Leadoff man at 1 o'clock. And that was kind of my afternoon leave my mom alone time. And I would just sit. And we had those TVs, you know, that it wasn't a TV just sitting on a table. It was like an entire case and the TV screen was just in the middle of that giant case. And oh, yeah. So um, I would just sit there and watch WGN all day long uh, or afternoon yeah. and watch Cubs. And I would get so mad. Once a week, the Cubs would be on what was called CLTV, Chicagoland TV, which we didn't get. Yeah. So I'd miss that one. And then anytime the Cubs were on the road, I'd get pissed. Oh, yeah. Because they're on the road. You know, they may be on WGN, but they're at 7 o'clock at, at night, night, and I'm four years old. I have to go to bed. So, oh, yeah. So that's why, and the Cubs were so bad back then. They had that run in 89, you know, and then got beat by the Giants and Will Clark, but yep. uh, I was four. So the Cubs were so bad back then, and all my friends were Braves fans. And so I hate the Braves. <laughs> I loathe the Braves. Even more than the Cardinals. Yeah, oh, yeah. I couldn't care about the Cardinals. I don't, couldn't care less. Cardinals, White Sox, I'm like, I don't care. Because it's about who you're around. Yeah. So I, on my whole childhood, I just hear this chirping about the Braves because they had Maddox, Glavin, Smoltz, Avery, um, all these players Ron Gant, Otis Nixon, Marquise Grissom, Fred McGriff, Galarraga. That's like over and over and over, and they're so good. Justice Lopez, I mean, it just doesn't oh, yeah. stop. Chipper. Chipper, yeah. Like, this is annoying. And then all they do is rip me about how bad we are, <laughs> and then talk about how they're going to the playoffs every year. And so some of it was jealousy, and sure. some of it was just like, shut up. So anyway, I hate the Braves for that reason. But I also never got to watch them because it'd be fourth inning and I'd have to go to bed. Yeah. So I'd sit there and watch Cubs all day. What was that Cubs World Series like for you? I was there. Game seven in Cleveland. Wow. I was there. So I made a promise to myself in college um, because Alabama was so bad when I was in college. I was there for Shula. Mm -hmm. So I just said, I'm never going to take sports experiences for granted. Like, I'm not a big uh, material guy. The collectibles are just something I enjoy. But I don't wear... You know, fancy watches. Mm-hmm. I don't wear fancy clothes. I drive a really nice truck, but I couldn't care less about getting a Maserati or a Lambo. Like, yeah. just doesn't appeal to me. So yeah. I'm very much about experience. So when I go somewhere, I want to stay somewhere nice. If I, you know, if there's a championship, I want to go. Um, so I've always just said, anytime Bama or the Cubs are now in, I will always go because I don't want to take it for granted. 
and just be like, oh, I'll go next time. It may yeah. not be a next time. Somebody in 1908 said, I'll go next time. And it was 108 years later before they went uh, or won it. So that was nuts. We actually, I, I got so lucky because I did say the Cubs played the Giants in the divisional round that year. Mm-hmm. And I didn't go to a single game in the division round. And that was because I had been to divisional rounds before. And I Cubs played the Braves, actually, in divisional in 03. So I was like, I, I won't do that. But I said, when the Cubs have a chance to clinch the pennant, I will go and watch that game. So the first time the Cubs had a chance was game six of the NLCS in Chicago. They had just beaten the Dodgers two out of three in L.A., come home with a 3-2 lead, flew up to Chicago Friday night, saw them clinch, sat in the bleachers. That was insane. Oh, that yeah. was, that was a, and I'm I, I don't drink anymore, but that night I made up a lot of lost time. That was uh, a very very crazy night in Wrigleyville. Oh yeah, that was nuts. Um, just the amount of people that were just in the area, not just the stadium, just the area. Mm-hmm. So then, so I got lucky. I I only had to spend money on one game. My fear was like they get up 3-1 and I have to go to three games and spend all this money on tickets and hotels and flights. And You know how Southwest, you can cancel flights and rebook with no penalty? They probably thought I was a terrorist. (laughs) (laughs) Because in the LCS round, it was was, uh, Toronto and Cleveland was on the other side of the Mm -hmm. bracket. And I'm like booking, okay, got to go here. And then if we win this, I got to get to Toronto then I may also have to get to Cleveland, but then I may have to go here. What's the closest city? How far is the drive? You know, just mapping on, I'd have like five routes booked under the same name on the same day. <laughs> I'm like, somebody in Southwest is like, there's a problem with this guy. And that's all I would do. The game would end. I'd call him up, cancel wherever I need, rebook to something else. Yep. Um, and then in Cleveland, the Cubs got down three, one, And then they won the last game at home, so it was 3-2. They won game six in Cleveland, 3-3. And uh, about three days before that, I had booked, because I knew game six we couldn't clinch. So I'd booked about three days in advance, said, all right, game seven, you know, here we go. And I had my flight booked, and they won. They blew them out in game six. They killed them. And I was like, oh, my God. And so I was drinking too much at home that night <laughs> and i got up early the next morning flew to cleveland by myself with a hangover uh best thing i saw was on one of the flights an indians fan got on the plane and he sat right in front of me and he had a roger dorn jersey on that so was fantastic <laughs> but it, i mean i didn't even have a ticket though to the game and i sat in the hotel room and i waited StubHub would cut off like four hours before first pitch so i waited till like three hours and or four hours and ten minutes. I was like, that's when they'll be at their lowest. And so I grabbed one ticket, went downtown by myself, ate, drank, went to the game, and that was that was insane. The the role the game against the Dodgers when the Cubs clinched, it was uneventful. I mean it was awesome. No drama though. Yeah. Cubs were in control. People forget in that game. The Cubs pitching staff um, faced the minimum. So you think perfect games, no hitters, etc. 
Game six of an NLCS, and the Cubs staff faced the minimum. They only faced 27 hitters that night. Wow. Because they had a caught stealing, and they had, I think, two double plays. There was a double play to end the game. So they faced the minimum, which a lot of people forget. Wow. That's very rare to see something like that. Absolutely. Um, But in Cleveland, it was weird because the Cubs had a big lead and then blew it and then had the rain delay and then won. Mm -hmm. So that roller coaster of emotions. And I'm sitting there and the Cubs were up 6-2 or 6-3. And in my mind, I'm like, when's it going to happen? whole time i'm just going when's it gonna happen when's it gonna happen and then chapman comes in and you're like it's not gonna happen I'm not gonna hit off chapman definitely not gonna hit a homer off chapman they hit a homer <laughs> and you're like how poetic like the, the most impossible scenario happens and i'm like this is it this is how we lose and i called somebody during the rain delay I just said, this rain delay is the best thing could have happened. It sucked all the energy out. Yep. Calmed everyone down. Like, the best thing that could have happened. Just throw a wet so, blanket on them. It did. It did. And I mean, I don't know how many <laughs> Cleveland holds. I forget what they call it today, which sponsor has the stadium. But um, it was, I think, Progressive when I was there. Progressive Field. But that stadium was 50%, if not more, Cubs fans. Really? That's so cool. Which is crazy because the Indians haven't won it since 48. So that's a big difference from 08. But yeah. they were, they're were they the longest now because yeah. it was the Cubs, the Red Sox, and the White Sox. Red Sox 04, White Sox 05, Red Sox multiple times since. Yeah. But the Cubs, when Indians are now the... The, uh, the ones. The, the longest without. Yeah, they're 48. So How about that? It was just crazy, their home park, that they sold and gave up their tickets. I mean, I'm sure people paid plenty, but mm-hmm. that people sold out. Yeah, that's just that. history, though, man. That's what I mean, Chicago, experience. Yeah, Chicago Cubs. Now, I've never been a – I've never disliked the Cubs. I've never been a Cubs fan until I went to teach golf in Chicago in 1995. Mm-hmm. And then I got a taste of, like, the passion – that is, I'm not sure in any professional sport that I've seen anything like it. Yeah, that's the most passionate fan base professionally that I've that I've personally experienced, and it's addictive. Like, like I said, I'm I'm an o- Orioles. It's been I've been an Orioles fan and Pirates fan early in my life, but mostly Orioles, um, and nothing like nothing like the Cubs. Yeah, but it's something you know the day game. Mm-hmm. Feel I've obviously won ninety five when I was in Chicago. They already had night games, and I saw a handful of night games. But it's so cool to to be in that stadium. You know, I've been to, I've been to that stadium to see one, two, three, five Cubs games and a Pearl Jam show. Yeah, and, yeah Pearl Jam. Um, I never I, I hadn't I hadn't thrown a baseball since nineteen ninety two. Not even tossed one by accident to somebody that maybe the ball rubbed my foot since ninety two. And I walk into the Pearl Jam show and the smell of the cut grass, it, it threw me into like a flashback <laughs> of like little league baseball that I'll never forget. Like it's a the, the old factory sensories are so powerful, man. It just it, it transported me from two thousand sixteen to nineteen ninety two in a millisecond. Yeah. And it's just a memory that you never forget. And that was the show that they had the bad storm mm-hmm. and they weren't even sure that they were gonna be able to come back on and then with like f- 
the you know, the mayor said that if they took the stage before midnight, they could play until they were done because basically all the money Pearl Jam was going to make, they were giving to Chicago charities. Okay. And so at eleven fifty four, I think, or fifty five, Ernie Banks comes out with Eddie Vedder, and then he Eddie sang the song that he wrote for the Cubs, and then Ernie Banks said something, and then it was it was unbelievable to to be there to see. A, I never thought that I'd ever see a concert at Wrigley Field. I know. Now they do now they do it every year, but I'm like that was that was a big deal yeah that was um and that's why i try to preach experiences you know the only regret we just didn't have the money at the time the only regret is that i went alone didn't there wasn't someone who went with me yeah um but that kind of goes back to flight was free because we had southwest points so it cost me a hotel 150 bucks cost me like food and uber a couple hundred bucks Mm -hmm. the ticket i spent two grand Two grand to see Game Seven, 108 years, wiped away, and so it's like, yeah, it's a lot of money, the most I've ever spent for a single ticket. Mm-hmm. But I'd rather have that than a watch. Yeah, or I'd rather have that than a new wardrobe, because that night was unbelievable. For sure, that was crazy. Alabama, how long have you been a, a diehard Crimson Tide fan? My whole life. My my dad was born there. My granddad was a. Uh, principal and high school football coach down in the area, the mm-hmm. Brookwood area, no, okay. um, which is right outside of Tuscaloosa. Um, he didn't know Coach Bryant, but met him multiple times because he was in the local school system. Sure. Grandmother taught at County High School. Um, you know, I went to, so I, I was kind of destined to, to go to school there. I mean, I grew up watching um, watching Alabama and David Palmer, Jay Barker, they were kind of the first ones mm-hmm. that I watched and knew and could remember mm-hmm. and whatnot. And so I was just always uh, always diehard fan. Yeah. It's interesting because I grew up, you know, Penn State, Alabama was always a big one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I really despised Alabama for most of my childhood because my dad despised Alabama. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was, it's funny because I've, I tell, I've told this story before in my podcast, like every team that my dad liked, I liked the arrival just so that we could sit and <laughs> just a jab, meet. Yeah. But I learned real quick in 1979 uh, in the Sugar Bowl that there was going to be nobody that you were going to be rooting for in this house if it wasn't blue and white. Mm-hmm. And that, that goal line stand that Alabama had. Yeah. Um, 78. Yeah. I think it was January 1 or 79. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 78 season. Yeah, 78, 78 season. Yeah. Sent my dad into a tirade that made me see, like, okay, so I'm going to be a Penn State fan. Yeah. yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't. Barry Krause is a curse word around your house, is that right? <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I look back fondly now because, like, I'll never forget, like, what turned me from a despiser to a respecter uh-huh. is, like, my I got a scholarship when I went to Mississippi State and that scholarship meant that I had to work one football game Mm -hmm. and so I got the Alabama lot for Mississippi State Alabama Uh that's where I went to school and I'm like oh my god what what are the chances there's 15 of us 14 people get university lots and I get the Alabama lot I'm like oh my god this is gonna suck and literally the best time the best people and true fans of the sport yeah and there are some fan bases that are sick Alabama's not 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 for me, and like I said, that's coming from somebody that didn't even like them. I really felt that their fan base was educated and kind. I really thought 
I don't like Nebraska either because that was another arch rival. Mm-hmm. I think Nebraska fans are phenomenal. No, they are. Yeah. I'm not a huge Notre Dame fan. No, I'm not. I've never had a good experience. And, the, and Florida, the twice. Might, University of Florida might be the worst. They're I, bad. LSU's bad. Really? LSU's I've never, I've never been to LSU. And, um, and yeah, I've been down there a few times. Um, you know what's crazy is LSU fans are all nuts. <laughs> they all are. But some of them are nuts, like the crazy uncle at the holidays. And they mess with you, and they're like, yeah, but come on over here. We got gumbo and alligator and this uh, and that. And it's like, we're just messing with you, you know, and they're jabbing you the whole time, but it's fun. Yeah. Then there are others that it's not fun. That's like, exactly You don't right. need to be here yeah. kind of thing. And But, yeah, all fan bases have those few. Just some have more than others. Yeah. Um, but Alabama gets a bad rap because – They've been so good lately. Yeah, they're just they're, they're, they're just like, fatigue. oh, you're the bandwagon team, or yeah. oh, you didn't even go to school there, or you're the bandwagon, or all that kind of stuff. And and I get all that, but yeah, when when we go, if you go to Alabama's campus, you're not going to see very many that are the wow, that guy's nuts, or he's causing problems. Yeah, for you may sure. see some weirdos like with their whole body painted. Yeah, but that's different. From the angry, drunk tirade people, 100%. and and we really don't. I never see that mm-hmm. in Tuscaloosa. You do see it in other, and I've been to every campus, mm-hmm. and I, I've seen a lot of it. And you know what's crazy is, even though I hate Auburn, I mean, it, we make the joke like, I, I hope all their cows get sick and their crops have no <laughs> yield. You know, like, it's just <laughs> everything. But I will say, I've never had a problem. At Auburn. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually surprised to hear you say that about Florida. Never had a problem. I've been to the swamp twice. Uh, never had a Florida problem. The only ones I've had, uh, LSU was a problem. Old Miss was actually a problem. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And I just think, I don't think the people are bad. I think they can't control their liquor. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think six days of the week, they're probably fantastic people. It's the one day they get so excited and jittery, and they just can't hold it, and then they turn into you know. And I think they probably else. got a little bit spoiled because they were the only team that beat Alabama. Yeah, uh, they had Hugh. a couple a couple of times, right? Yeah. And they had that on their mantle of yeah. pride. Yeah. They oh did. man, it's they like I, being it from Mississippi State and not being from Mississippi. I, I actually enjoyed the times that I was at Ole Miss. I don't really have any deep seated hatred toward Ole Miss. It, I mean, I've been there a lot. I've been to Oxford yeah. quite a bit. Um, and it was only twice, two different trips. But I was just more, I guess I was so shocked by it yeah. that that's what threw me off. Mm-hmm. Like, Ole Miss has bad fans. <laughs> yeah. So it could have been their five fans out of the whole mm. fan base that I ran into. For but sure. State's always been a good one. I mean, it was such a, that was a day trip in Tuscaloosa. You oh, know, yeah. Hour and a half over, hour and a half back. Yep. And that's kind of it. But For yeah. sure. What's your... Uh, your five favorite golf courses that you've played? Well, I like playing courses that um, where they've had events, even if they're not great courses, mm-hmm. just to be able to be like, man, I'm standing on the same tee the box experience. as Tiger, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Stream Song may be my favorite. Really? Down in Central Florida. Mm-hmm. It's very non-Florida-esque golf. Yeah. Um, but it, it's really cool. I enjoyed it a lot, and I only played it once, but I would love to go back there. Uh, I've played TPC Scottsdale. And love I, that place. I got to do it in December, and so everything was built. So I played 16 
as a stadium. And that was... So I told you earlier, I'm an annoying match play guy. Mm-hmm. All right, so I get up there. I'm nervous, you know, the stadium and everything. And I had not been playing well that day, so I'm even more nervous. Mm-hmm. And I pull my nine iron, or maybe it was a wedge, but I pull it, and I pull it, and it lands in the first row of the stadium left of the green. So the caddy, they're all in on it. Like, they boo me and, you know, do the thing, which is funny. <laughs> but that's a man-made object. Yeah. Obstruction. So you get a free drop. And so I drop and pitch it up and get up and down and make par. How about that? So that's my thing. I'm like, well, yeah, stadium course. I hit it in the stands and made par. And so that was fun. Um, I got to play Kapalua in Maui, that's which was fun. Yeah, that's so good. Um, I've played um, Poi Pu Bay on Kauai, where mm-hmm. they used to have the Grand Slam. So good. Yeah. Um, so good. So those are like my PGA. I played Doral. Um, that was pretty cool. Uh, I think I think that's it for PGA or tournament mm-hmm. events. Um, Stream Song's my favorite though, and it's pretty spectacular. Yeah, it's it's really really cool, really nice. And I played some super nice like places in private. I played Tory. That was the other one. Mm-hmm. I played a few places in San I'm Diego. So you got to just figure out when you're playing it. So I played it. Um, three weeks before the farmers and my god it was amazing just so manicured spectacular mm. greens were glass i mean crazy fast yeah. thick rough the whole thing like you got the experience that day and that was fun yeah um and then i played it again and it was like a muni course greens were furry not punched yeah just furry uh it wasn't as manicured, and it wasn't near the farmer's timeline. For sure. But they still were having, like, a U.S. Juniors thing there or something, and that was my thing. I was like, I could understand if there was no event for two or three months. Yeah. You know, and it's just like, eh, it is what it is, guys. You know, play yeah. it because it's Tory. But it's like, there's a U.S. event here, even though it's Juniors. Mm-hmm. It's still a U.S. event. Um, and I was just kind of surprised that it wasn't. <laughs> In, in tip-top shape yeah. so fun course cool course again experience but you uh you definitely have to time it mm-hmm, for sure you're gonna play you know you you also have a podcast mm-hmm. what uh what has been the gift of the podcast to you that you were not expecting while just trying to create a create content that is meaningful to you but if if it's anything like what it is for me, this has turned into something that's way bigger for me than what I anticipated. What has it meant to you? Uh, you know, I think it's more opened the door to a lot of connections, and we kind we did this um, podcast. We actually planned it and we're starting it before COVID. We did our first one recording in January of twenty, and then released episode one on my birthday in February of 20. And that was the plan and the goal was to do these podcasts with video mm-hmm. and put them on YouTube and you know put them on Apple and Spotify and just everywhere um, and have guests and talk about some of those pet peeves I have, like the education and mm-hmm. finances and you know just kind of be a resource 
and then I would tell people like, hey, reach out. You know, I, I'm not saying reach out so I can sell you something. Reach out. I'll just give you my two cents if you want another opinion because yeah. I think I'm better qualified than the plumber at your house who just happened to refi recently and you got advice from or mm-hmm. something. You know, and so um, that's where it all started. And then we had COVID, and so I transitioned because you're sitting at home all day. I transitioned to um, doing a live show every day at two o'clock, every single weekday, two o'clock, hmm. and we'd talk about different things. And it may be a seven-minute show, it could be a thirty-minute show, different guests, yeah. etc. And uh, we had a lot of fun with it. And I always knew social media was a powerful thing, but for me, it did two things. It helped me one stay connected and keep building relationships during COVID when we were all indoors sure for the most part um so i'm very thankful to have that outlet um yeah. and to have the communications background um that made it to where i wasn't scared to do it mm-hmm. um and then it also just helped me realize like what an impact you can have on social media and on social media how many people are watching you and you have no idea yeah so many times people are like posted something on instagram I got like one comment and 10 likes and that's it. And I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but in reality there could have been 300 people that saw it. Yep. They just don't engage don't or engage don't say it. anything, but then you go talk to them or you see them later on. I have people now, which I think is the most flattering. I have people now who call me up and they're like, man, you must be, doing well i see you on social all the time doing this doing that talking about this whatever like so i've had people i hadn't talked to in 20 years not kidding from high school wow and they'll reach out to like facebook messenger or something or instagram dm Mm -hmm. they're like hey hope you've been doing well i know we hadn't talked in forever but you're always posting about this topic and we're about to buy a house and what do you think on this like i hadn't talked to you in 20 years but (laughs) But that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's kind of the power of of social media mm-hmm. um, and podcasts because it's all virtual and digital yeah. and everything. So um, we really stress, even with our own team, like physical in-person is still crucial. But if you're not living in both worlds, you know, you're, you're kind of missing out. Yeah, for sure. A lot. So that's for me. Mm-hmm. Final question. Do you get a chance to play golf at one place? And you get to bring a fivesome, so you get you and four your four people. I don't care if dead or alive, know them or didn't know them. Where are you playing and who are you playing with? It's Augusta, I mean, automatic Augusta. Um, I would still like St Andrews would be a really close second for me, and mainly because we don't have that golf here. Yeah, we just don't have it. And there are places that try to like imitate it. There's even a place in Orlando. I forgot what it's called. Maybe um. I can't remember. I'm going to butcher it, so I won't even say it. But played at a place in Orlando that was uh, the old course redone yeah. in Florida, like just completely replicated. Mm-hmm. It's just not the same, though, yeah. and it's, it's just not. And also, Florida grass and weather and everything, it's just not the not, same. That's you not can't Scottish. do it. No, you <laughs> cannot do it. And so... You can't just be like, oh, here's the road hole. And yeah. then it's like, yeah, but it doesn't play the same, you know? It's not the same hole. Yeah. Um, so I would say Augusta. Uh, 
as far as who would I play with, it's automatic tiger. And that's one. Um, I would say, I would say Jordan would be two. Um, you know, I may go old school here and say, uh, Francis we met um, because of just what he did I forget what year it was 1903 13. 13 okay 1913 US Open um, that's insane so uh, that that would just be kind of cool yeah. I think um, so that's three I mean I'm partial to Justin Thomas just because he's Alabama guy and he's seems mm. like a cool guy you know yeah. overall um but i would say uh i'm not a huge nicholas fan like i don't i don't know there's yeah. something there you can leave ryan sandberg out of your five out of your five so? i don't know if he's a good golfer i guess i just <laughs> hang out with him i don't know if he's a very good golfer but yeah sandberg would be a would be a good one um I mean, maybe Saban. If they don't have to be good at golf, I guess. Then, yeah. Yeah, I could, yeah, Saban or Sandberg. I think if you have Tiger, you have to have somebody that can make Tiger talk. Like, I would always think that if, if when I'm answering this question, right, if I'm taking Tiger, I'm also taking Arnold Palmer. Yeah. Yeah. I because Arnold Palmer would make Tiger talk. Because yeah. Arnold Palmer had a way. When he walked in, everybody started to open up. Mm-hmm. He was just the one of the most magnetic characters I've ever been around in any particular arena at all. I was just like, he has it. One thing I'm not as good with, um, and the reason I didn't say Palmer, growing up, baseball was my sport. So I know so much traditionally and historically about baseball. Golf, while I love golf, and I love football, Mm -hmm. and I do like basketball, uh, those sports... I don't, I still know a lot of history, but I don't know those kinds of things. Like, I would know that about somebody in baseball from the 50s. Yeah. But I know Arnold Palmer, who is, of course, I know his accomplishments, mm-hmm. but I don't know, you know, all the history and what he would be like and things like mm-hmm. what you're talking sure. about and describing. Um, and so that makes it a little harder for me, too, because I get stuck in this baseball world. Um, even though I hate the Braves, I think it would be fun to play with Smoltz. Yeah. Smoltz is so good at golf. I mean, made the U.S. Open, the senior. Mm-hmm. The senior Open. So no doubt. Be another fun one. How can how can the listeners get in touch with you, either about getting a mortgage, getting information about what your opinion is on their decision-making processes, or any other of the great things that you have cooking, including your book? How can people reach out to you and, and get a hold of you? I mean, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. Um, you got to try not to find me if you <laughs> on social media because we try to post all the time and stay relevant. Uh, but my my handles on Instagram is probably where I'm most active, but it's at Beyond the Loan. But if you Google Chad Anderson Instagram, you know, Beyond the Loan will pop up. Uh, Facebook as well, but any of those DMs, I, I, it's me responding. I'm not some diva with too many followers and things <laughs> like that. Like I, uh, that that's pretty much the easiest is coming the the social media path. Yeah. Um, Instagram, Facebook, uh, email is chad.anderson at modernteam.com if you want to shoot an email. But like I said, the the social media is 
is where I'm at. Excellent. Well, Chad, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story. And let's see what happens this, uh, in the upcoming future, not only with uh, interest rates and housing, but NIL, NFTs. <laughs> all of it. All of it. Well, thank yeah. you very much for coming on, bud. Hell of a time. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you, or check out their website, www.curemich.com. Cure. Cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is produced by Chase Akers. If you've enjoyed the show, leave a five-star rating and write a review. Click subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a single episode.